Thousands of migrant children have gone missing upon their arrival in Europe, over 10,000 according to Europol. Some of these children are as young as four years old. What has happened to them? How did they get to be lost in Europe? How have so many all but disappeared? I'm Nisha Bastani. And I'm Francesca Dakin. From the University of Cambridge and the Centre of Governance and Human Rights, this is Declarations. Francesca and I have two guests with us today. They're part of a team of investigative journalists whose project Lost in Europe looks to recover stories of these missing children. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Cecilia Ferrara. I'm a journalist from Italy. I'm from the team of Lost in Europe, as you said, and I belong also to the first investigative center of journalism in Italy, which is called the IRPI, Investigative Reporting Project Italy. Hi there, um, my name is Eshmael Irache. I'm also part of the Lost in Europe uh, team. I'm a journalist based in London, and I'm also affiliated to the Cambridge University's Migration Research Centre here in Cambridge. Great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit more about the Lost in Europe project while you're here in Cambridge? Um, well, Lost in Europe is a cross-border investigative uh, journalism project which is trying to uh, find the 10,000 missing uh, child refugees that uh, we know of according to Europol. It's an estimate, so the number could be higher or lower than that. But it's a cross-border project which is funded by the EU's um, Investigative Journalism Fund and involves journalists like myself and Cecilia. Um, so we've got uh, journalists from Italy, from the UK, from the Netherlands and uh, from Belgium. And the idea is that we're working together in a collaborative manner to try and find these children and we are being supported by a number of organisations such as DPRO, uh, Radio Argos and BBC Radio 4 News in London and we're here today in Cambridge because we have an event uh, uh, this evening and also just to plug we have an event tomorrow at the Tate Modern um, so part of the Lost in Europe project is also about uh, system journalism and it's also about reaching out to people to try and have a conversation not just amongst ourselves as journalists but also with the public so that's an important part also of the project. Um, yes basically we know that these children are often crossing the borders so our objective is to follow them with our work and so we cannot stay only in one country we cannot investigate only in one country but we have to see what happened to them in the other countries where they're Heading. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point as you just made, which is that this is a cross-border phenomenon across Europe. So it's not just one group of uh, children, whether they're from Afghanistan or from Somalia or from Afghanistan, or from whatever country they happen to be from. They are moving from Italy via Austria to Germany. I'll give you an example. Sana, uh, who's one of the journalists in the team, who's here today in Cambridge uh, from the Netherlands, her and I are currently working together on stories about Vietnamese children uh, who have been in the Netherlands but who've come to the UK, uh, often been smuggled by Calais into the UK. So this is an important element of the Lost in Europe project, which is sort of a cross-border kind of aspect to it. Mm. So these are children who are coming from all over, or multiple different countries, correct? 
Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from the Italian point of view. Italy is one of the doors in Europe. Usually migrants don't want to stay in Italy. They want to go to the richer countries of, uh, of Europe. And so do children that arrive without any parents that, that arrive on their own in, uh, in Italy. There are waves So, for example, until 2015, we had a massive flow of Afghan children. Then we had the Egyptian children. It's all related. Then Egypt closed a border between Egypt and Algeria, so they, they couldn't cross it anymore. And so now um, there is uh, another crisis in Tunisia and other Tunisian children are coming back. So there are several reasons for people to move that follow both politic uh, conflict uh, economic crisis and also the border closure and and openness <laughs> well you've been working in the balkans for a long time right and you see the situation i was in zagreb a few weeks ago and i know on the border between croatia at the moment and bosnia it's been shut and the violence that's happening there is pretty brutal So with both what's happening in Europe, the fact that the EU border systems force people to in very difficult circumstances and often the most vulnerable are children. As Julia was saying, you know, in Italy, it's a country which is on the periphery, it's a kind of entry zone into Europe, like Greece. Um, and I look at the story from the side of, I guess, the destination, which for most of them, you know, if you go to Italy, which I've been to many times, you meet young migrants and refugees who are 12, 13, 14, 15, from Gambia or Senegal or Somalia or Eritrea. And they all say, I want to come to London, I want to come to London. So these political movements that are happening in their country because people are feeling violence, and Islamist violence in some cases in places like Somalia or um, persecution um, or war, conflict, and but also people are actually within Europe fleeing the EU's failed systems uh, of trying to enforce these border controls which basically often render very vulnerable people uh, invincible and put them into very vulnerable positions, which I think is something that's often missing in the discourse that we hear about migration and how the EU itself uh, is part of the problem. I mean, you've got a situation in Italy at the moment where EU is sending migrants and refugees back to Libya, you know, after they've been rescued, they've been sent them back to the middle of a war zone. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot about politics, a lot about what's going on on the political level of the European governments. And also we were talking about the Balkans before. For example, Serbia has been a country where all the immigrants would got stopped. And that's because Serbia want to, you know, to have an accession to Europe. So for Serbia was good to be... Uh, in that moment, the frontier of Europe to be the good guy, you know, protecting the fortress. Uh, then, of course, the migrants understood that uh, they couldn't pass from that, that border anymore and they went to Bosnia. That would seem a little bit better. But then again, Croatian police started to be tougher and tougher, beating up children, breaking uh, their phones, sending them back. And, but this is not only happening at the borders of Europe. This is happening also within Europe, between Italy and France. There have been many violences reported towards minors. Minors cannot be rejected from any country in Europe. So what was happening is that the French police would ask their age and, and they would say, I don't know, 16, 17, and they would fake the papers mm. and they would put, you know, they are 18 and they would send them back. 
So this is a big problem and it's on our shoulders. Yeah, and just to briefly add to that, I think that's a, another very important point, not just in the Lost in Europe project, but the broader issues that it's trying to grapple with. And I think one of the points you're just mentioning, I and mean, if you look at the border between, which is technically the British border is in France, between France and the UK, you see how the children of Calais have been treated. It's pretty appalling and the kind of rhetoric that's been happening in the mainstream press. So at the moment, I'm working with NGOs who've worked in Calais and also NGOs in Belgium and the UK to try and find some of the children from Calais uh, who went missing. And we also saw after they cleared the camps that the violence, the French police meted out to the young people who were there often, uh, uh, forcing people to go through very humane and humiliating processes in terms of having to prove their age. Uh, etc. So again, the violence that's happening to people isn't just people on the move, it isn't just outside Europe's borders or at Europe's borders, it's very much within Europe's borders between European states. And with all these difficulties of actually crossing the border and all of the border closures and the response from the EU, how do you find it is in terms of actually following these stories, being able to follow these children from place to place when they're sometimes not being documented as coming in and out of certain countries? It's not easy at all, actually. Many children, they, they want to escape, so they, they don't want to be found. Mm-hmm. They move uh, into uh, among informal places. They use uh, passeurs, uh, smugglers. Uh, so we can only talk among ourselves and ask. I mean, usually it's better to start from the top. So to start and talk to the to the people who arrived in UK or in the Netherlands and say, where were you before? Mm-hmm. And often they were in Rome, for example, in an informal centre, in the centre of Rome or in Sicily. So at the moment, I'm also trying to analyse all the routes that they're able to go through uh, in order to go out of Italy. But uh, it's, it's uh, really difficult. We can do it via Facebook, for example. It would be good. One, one thing that I do for with the social workers, for example, is to exchange Facebook profiles. And sometimes after they made it, but also with the Calais uh, people, I remember it used to happen. Then they send pictures to say, yeah, we're here. So this is, of course, through Internet, exactly like they do. Mm-hmm. They, they they move, then they learn to move in Europe with in- connections like this. Yeah, and I think that's very much true. It's basically very difficult. And not only is it difficult, but also people go missing uh, across borders. There, there's the right data available. Countries in which these children are moving between are sharing the data. So it's very difficult if you're investigating it. But at the same time, also, you know, you message silly about the ways in which you get in touch with them. And I think it's interesting that social media is a really important aspect of that because they're young normally, you know, the 12, the ones that I'm dealing with often are sort of, you know, um, between 11 to 15, say, and they're using WhatsApp, they're using Facebook and Twitter occasionally, but really Facebook and WhatsApp, but that's one of the ways in which they are really engaging with me, but also with each other and their families back home. And just another point to add to that is, you know, often people are fingerprinted when they arrive, right, in Italy. Um, that's what happens. And many of them obviously don't want to be because then you're on these systems. And because of the Dublin Convention, which says that the first country in which you enter in the EU is the country which must process your asylum request basically means that people don't really want to stay there, particularly in places like Italy and uh, in the south of Italy and Sicily, Sicily and Calabria and Puglia, but also in Greece, because they want to head to northern sort of European countries. And I've heard mm-hmm. many stories, I've actually met people who've often cut their yeah, the skin off their fingers in order to 
avoid uh, being detected. And these are children cutting the skin off their own yes, fingers? Yes, there will be, I've met them who have been 15 and 16, yes. Well, and for those children that do fall through the cracks, the ones that maybe fall into the hands of traffickers, drug gangs, could you talk a little bit about those children? Well, in, initially, uh, at the moment, I'm investigating in Rome, and mm-hmm. there is quite an uh, important phenomenon of male uh, minors prostitutions around Termini Station, the main station in Rome. And this is like a pole of attractions for them, for the youngsters for, from many nationalities. Uh, as we were saying, there was a, a big uh, wave of uh, Egyptians that arrived initially very, very young. So they're, they're still minors, even if they arrived some years ago. I mean, when they, the, the male prostitutions in, in, in Termini is self, I mean, they don't have like someone who would take care of them the Egyptian, but uh, for example, uh, Nigerian boys, they have uh, the madame, exactly like the the girls. And and you can see them like in group of three, they stay there and you can understand that they're, they're not waiting for anybody, they're not doing anything, so they're waiting for clients. And you see this, these women going from group to another group, talking, uh, I mean, I don't know about what, but I mean, checking on them. And so these are two different, for example, kind of prostitution, because one is is self-promoted, so to say. I mean, they, they want money, even even if it's uh, this is the way they get it, but it's, it's, it's what they think it's easier to, to get money, to pay back the debt to the family, which is very, very important because there is a strong pressure from the families to these children. But when uh, you have someone else who's, who's taking the money, that, that's trafficking, that's, that's a serious crime. The other, of course, thing that they are going into is drug dealing, of course. Uh, a lot of them are offering both, both sex and, and drugs. And of course, when there is drug, there is someone who's selling it to you. So there are older probably fellow nationals uh, or, or from, from other kind of uh, groups which are exploiting these children. So these are some of the most serious phenomenon we have in Rome. Then you have also work exploitation because uh, many of them are, I don't know, working at the little shops of acquaintances or at the restaurants uh, or uh, also in the general market where all the vegetables arrive. Uh, There is a big market in the north of Rome and these children, they, they are not allowed to go in. So they climb up the fences and everybody knows. And they, they work for sometimes for, for nothing because sometimes they are promised a contract that they will never see. And then another one will come. <laughs> so, Yeah, um, in the UK primarily, um, the children that I've been um, speaking to, the, the kind of situation they've been getting into, particularly for Vietnamese children, which is very hard community to reach, are uh, cannabis farms. Vietnamese children are often smuggled, uh, trafficked into the UK, uh, even if they are found by the authorities, often they'll be trafficked. And there'll be a number of stories recently. There was one story where a number of children who seemed to be Vietnamese turned up in the lorry only last week. It was 14 people, and most of them were children in that truck. So it's drugs, particularly for Vietnamese children, who end up working in cannabis farms. And there was a story at the start of the year. The Times of London did a free information request and they found out that actually quite a lot of the cannabis farms in London were operated through Vietnamese gangs. I'm also hearing stories of 
the connection between Vietnamese Gans and also Albanian-speaking Gans, primarily from Albania and Kosovo. There's a connection potentially between them and how certain Vietnamese children go missing. I think also another important area in the UK is the domestic sphere, particularly for West African children. Uh, if you're thinking of Nigerian children who are often taken from their countries and, and they're presented in the UK as being someone's aunt, you know, this is my aunt or this is my sister or cousin. But actually that person is the person who's trafficked them and often they work in families um, um, in homes which they have to clean, work long hours. So this is some of the kind of stories that you find in the UK. But I just wanted to also briefly come back on what you're saying about Italy, because I spend also a lot of time in Italy and this um and the problems are obviously perhaps much greater in Italy because the numbers arriving are greater and also because it's the entry point. But in places like Sicily, it's pretty bad and it's got a lot worse. And I was doing a story this summer about trafficked um, Nigerian uh, women. Some of them were girls as young as 15. And they leave Nigeria normally from Edo State in Benin City. And they take part in these juju ceremonies. It's basically witchcraft. And that chain of witchcraft is very powerful. So they're very afraid to leave their madams. And in Palermo, in Valero, which is in the centre of the city, it's sort of a multicultural neighbourhood, uh, it's a market too, but you know, you have these connection houses and it's very much obvious and it's in front of the police, but they do nothing. And the situation there is pretty grim. And in 2016, International Organisation for Migration said almost 11,000 Nigerian women were trafficked primarily by Italy and 80% of them were trafficked because of sexual slavery or to work as domestic slaves effectively. And just finally, another interesting link to all of this is organised crime. And I think this is something that's also quite important if you think in Sicily, the Corso Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia is connected. In Calabria, the Mafia there, which is the most powerful in Italy, is connected. Actually, I'm hearing also potentially to what's going on in London, because at the moment in London, in the last year, we've had a horrendous rise in uh, violence on the streets. People have been killed, particularly very young people who are British-born. But I'm hearing stories that this is all connected to the cocaine trade. And the cocaine trade in London is largely now operated by Albanian gangs. And the Albanian gangs are connected to the cannabis trade, which is how the Vietnamese children are getting into the UK. So one of the areas I'm looking into is what what are these kind of connections and how do missing children fit into all that? I mean, the idea of missing children seems to imply some kind of like this happened by accident or some sort of carelessness. But then what you're pointing to are a lot of like big systemic organized actors um, that are at play and maybe the links aren't. Maybe it's not super clearly structured by one power, but there are big systemic actors that are playing into this and even including governmental authority in the sense that these children go missing, but they're also not trying to be found. As you mentioned, they're burning off their fingertips to not have biometrics taken, to not be identified. And then by virtue of not being found, they're being put in more and more vulnerable positions. Well, it depends a lot of uh, which kind of children we're talking about, because for example, Eritrean children, uh, they have a, a very strong uh, objective when they arrive in Italy is to go as soon as they can away from Italy and to reach uh, relatives and acquaintances in other countries in Europe. They do fall in the hands of traffickers, of course, from, from Sudan is, is, the, is the main uh, 
and more, most dangerous part of the of the trip. But then in Italy, of course, they they're uh, working. They, they in order to go away from Italy, they have to deal with the little passers, which are uh, either I don't know either Eritrean or Ethiopian. Uh, they they use them to to get the money because if you don't have the papers, uh, if they send you the money to keep on with the with the trip you need someone with the documents so you go somewhere where you know that there are your fellow national or also other people but and, and they take usually 15 percent for example and this is another kind of uh, <laughs> of exploitation of migration and then there are the passers for example at the border with france or with austria and they take uh, from 150 to 300 from sometimes even 800 euros uh, per per person so uh, also there there's a lot of money going on it's it's a really a, a rich business mm. but uh, uh, yes it, for example Eritrean are um, they're trafficked at some point, but they also have in mind a, a very clear idea to go to Europe to work, to pay the debt, to, to, to work for the family. So whereas Nigerians girls are um, mostly trafficked, what uh, Ishmael was saying is about the numbers, was talking about uh, 11,000 and the uh, like three or four years earlier than 2016 was uh, much lower, was 3,000 or something. So there was a, a rise in the business and that's clear. And also another thing we are not talking about is, is the Nigerian mafia, which is getting very strong in Italy. It's a, quite a new phenomenon. Mm. And of course, through drug dealing and through prostitution. If I could just ask as well, a part of refugees' avoidance of the authorities is, of course, to do with avoiding being sent to the camps. Could you talk a little bit about the issues faced by children at these camps and the sort of human rights issues associated with the living conditions there? Well, initially, of course, there are good camps and bad camps. And uh, often in uh, the southern you go, the worse they are, unfortunately. So you have uh, different children that have been uh, brought to work. I mean, there have been cases in Sicily, for example, of children brought to uh, work by the the owner of the of the camp because it's a very fragmented business uh, also this kind of business and of course where the state is weaker like in Sicily mobsters or something like that they 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 can profit of the situation and profit of the money they get from the state to take care of the of the children and they can exploit them as well but we didn't have bigger and and uh, very outrageous cases. Most of the children they escape because they don't do anything in the camps. They don't have school. They don't know when they will have the documents. For example, if uh, th there was this plan of relocations for um, for many children until 2017, they could go in other countries uh, legally, but this process would take uh, uh, one two years, and they, and they couldn't wait. Uh, there have been cases of children that. They couldn't wait and they died, I don't know, in, in a train uh, that was going to Austria, for example, that there have been some cases like that. So there are very, very different situations. 
The thing now that in Italy there is a different politics because of the new government. We have a very anti-immigration uh, minister of interior, which probably you heard of, is uh, Matteo Salvini, who decided that we uh, that Italy was too much open to immigration and that uh, it was a business also for, for, I don't know, NGOs or cooperatives who were working in this field. And so basically they cut the money for, uh, for taking care of asylum, uh, asylum seekers of a half or something like that, but they kept the same money for minors. So now probably everybody will take care of the minors like it's gold because, <laughs> because of course there is kind of business also in, in mm. taking care of immigrants coming to, to, to Europe. And uh, so I was talking with this NGO in Sicily and I was asking about uh, the, the same that you were asking. And, he sa- and they will say, you know, now minors are, are the only immigrants we have and we can take care of. So the everybody's, uh, you know, is giving them everything. <laughs> and that also raises other issues as well, right? Because if there's being so much focus on minors, then children are going to be scared of also like reaching the maximum age and being in a, like a rush to go through processes before. There's also an issue of commodification of, of children going on here. If that's where all the, all the money's being put towards. Yeah, but it's a, I think it's, it's a business and it's both a business for smugglers, business for the Nigerian mafia, for the Sicilian mafia, but it's also a business for, um, the people who run reception centres across Italy, and I spent a lot of time in Italy and in places like Basilicata, Calabria, wherever I've been, it, it's a business. And actually, in some cases, if you go to Sicily or even Basilicata or wherever, like actually it's rejuvenated like dying communities in Italy because all the old people are, are, are only there and all the young people have left parts of these small villages. There's a village called uh, uh, San Kiriko, which is in Basilicata. I went there for a story, uh, quite a sweet story about, not so sort of hard investigative, but it was a story about a, young, a group of young migrants uh, who lived in a reception centre there and they were doing a play with local Italian kids and, and they were doing a remaking of Jason and the Argonauts and they're working with this uh, Italian theatre company. It was a really lovely story. And anyway, I, I was there and I was just struck. The small place for like 3,000 people, there was like 90% were like above 80 or something. And in some of these places in the south of Italy, you know, migrants have rejuvenated these communities. But to go back to your question before, I just want to mention in the UK, I think one of the things that's also really troubling is the role of the private sector. So we see detention centres in the UK Children are held, and they shouldn't be, uh, where, where other people, of course, also are held, including stories of emergent pregnant women and others who are in very vulnerable positions. Uh, but we've had security firms and people who operate these centres. So it's a business all around. It's a business for the private contractors in the UK who are running these detention centres. It's a business for the smugglers who are getting you know, people into Europe, it's a business for people at Germany who are prostituting uh, vulnerable people or all across Europe. This whole thing is a business. And I think sometimes we forget that aspect of, of, of the stories of migration and people on the move that people are making money from human misery. It's really, you know, horrible to kind of see and, you know, as reporters doing these stories, often I don't always get to write about everything I see, but I've seen this aspect quite a lot in particularly in places like Italy, that it's, it's a business and uh, sort of human misery and experience and stories are being used for people to make money. 
Yeah, that's true. And you don't have to forget the agricultural sector, also in the south of, of, of Italy, in Foggia, which is Puglia, or in Gioia Tauro Plana, which is in Calabria, but also all over Sicily. There are ghettos with migrants, with documents, without documents, minors, women. There are brothels sometimes because they build like kind of informal village. And these are all gangmastered by Italian uh, uh, companies who, I don't know, collect tomatoes, oranges uh, and any kind of vegetables. And I mean, this is uh, one of our primary industry and uh, part of the, you know, the made in Italy, mm. which make us so famous. So this is another story of exploitation of uh, human miseries and and on the other side you know we are Italians are all against immigration so there is a big racist wave now in Italy so it's uh, also they're even more vulnerable vul- vulnerable <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so this is another, uh, also another problem for them, mm-hmm. because uh, when the situation is is tougher, when uh, the, you cannot call the police because you know that you will be the the, the guilty one, mm-hmm. then you're you're more and more a slave of your uh, perpetrator. Mm. And so going back a little bit you said that's part of the reason why you're doing this project is that people remember all these different aspects that are at play and people don't forget that it is a business that there are all these actors who are profiting from it and in general obviously that people remember that there are even missing children and there are being mm-hmm. failed in these ways so what's at stake with having a public memory of what's going on like what do you envision coming out of that is it that people will be more active in making policy interventions or well, just quickly to say, um, I mean, Lost in Europe is a cross-border project, uh, including us two, but also there's a whole team of us. And there's real things coming out. It's already been coming out. So there are stories emerging in a lot of mainstream European newspapers. There's going to be stuff on uh, online, on radio. So there's real content that's going to come out, which are stories uh, that we have discovered, but also data. And that's another part of the project which I haven't mentioned. A few weeks ago, they had... Um, our colleagues in the Netherlands had a data boot camp uh, in Amsterdam in which they brought together all the data that's available on missing child migrants across the EU to try and understand what happens or what, what could happen when you bring all the numbers together. We've also got the data boot camp at the Tate Modern in London tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that's one clear sort of easy thing that's coming out. I think another broader thing that we're trying to do is have this conversation. You know, that's why we're really delighted to be with you guys on this podcast today that's why we're doing public events that's why we're trying to engage with citizen journalists and journalism because it's really important to go beyond the kind of small pool of investigative journalists that work on this subject across Europe and to try and you know talk to people right you know because it's a really important issue and actually everybody's just shocked anytime I tell people I'm working on this they're like oh my god I did not know this and actually people just don't know Mm, yeah that's true so yeah that's one point that is at stake so uh, awareness <laughs> of uh, european citizens that uh, we are actually missing children we are we are getting them lost in the in our system and uh, that, that that that's a danger a danger for them and a danger for us because first of all we are i mean as 
human being we are exploiting uh, minors. So and, and that's uh, very uh, serious. On the other hand, we are uh, creating uh, because they they come here in a, in the development in this very very vulnerable vulnerable age where they're looking for their identity and they suffer from uh, exploitation PTSD so they're they're getting uh, fr- frustrated adults i mean that's that's the problem and they're not going to be functional citizens anymore or it's uh, it's it's more difficult for them mm-hmm. so this is another thing that is that is uh, very important and they will have this uh, very wrecked identities because of their trips because of their they have to deal with other other cultures uh, and they're alone uh, and they're exploited so there are a lot of questions and so and i think also just to add sorry yeah. um I think also an aspect of this is really important that we're shining a light on wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of wrongdoing going on here, from the drugs to the prostitution to using children as domestic servants, shining a light on that wrongdoing through the stories that we tell. I've I've noticed that in the media, the refugee crisis and the issues involved with lost children, the amount that it's reported on sort of oscillates a bit. And do you find that the general interest in the public changes quite a lot. I mean, in 2015, with the two-year-old Syrian refugee washing up on the Turkish beach, that prompted a huge emotional response from people. Do you find that it's difficult to continue eliciting such a such a big response from people? I mean, I, I think our duty is to bring up wrongdoing, as, it mm-hmm. were, as we were saying. Of course, uh, sometimes the power of a picture is is bigger than uh, months of investigations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> months of hard, painful <laughs> investigations. Yeah. No, because the, um, the work you guys are doing is obviously of huge importance. And I think particularly it's important to point to the fact that the UK is complicit in these issues, especially at a time when Brexit is so much a part of the conversation That's and the leaving of the EU, it's another step removed from this problem. So continuing the conversation is of such great importance. Yeah, I mean, I think the trouble is, is that, as you say, sometimes a picture can really convey so much and that image of Island Kurdi was so mm. powerful and it definitely changed how we think about this stuff across Europe. But at the same time, you know, the so-called migration crisis hasn't gone away. It's been with us and it has been with us for a long time and it will always be with us in a sense. And I think what's really interesting to me is, you know, we had the Syrian refugee crisis, which was a pretty extraordinary thing to have happened and the situation that country still goes on. But the movement of people, say, from Africa uh, to Europe has been going for a long time by, you know, North Africa, by Lampedusa to Italy. Um, And sometimes, you know, what I worry is sometimes the coverage of migration means that Look, even in this conversation, we've been talking migrants, refugees, these kinds of distinctions, do they matter? And they do matter, but they shouldn't often, because what happens is, you know, we say there's like a league table. So you have Syrian refugees at the top, perhaps, and then you have people like uh, Becky, who's a young um, Nigerian woman. I met the summit in Sicily, and she was trafficked and, uh, you know, uh, was by the Nigerian mafia, uh, who worked with the Syrian mafia. She was going to be put into a connection house to probably work as a prostitute, but she was rescued by a group in Sicily. But she's just considered a migrant. Mm-hmm. She endured a horrendous journey from Nigeria via Libya. She was raped. Uh, she had 
terrible experience happened to her, but yet her worth is determined just being this migrant, and being migrant means you made your journey by choice. Refugee, you know, there's this idea that you haven't. So I, these definitions we've got to think about a bit more carefully. And yeah. just to come to the other point about kind of broader political context, particularly here in the UK, I do think um, this hardening attitude towards migration is obviously one of the main reasons why Brexit has happened. But it's not just in Britain, it's all across the EU. You know, Julie was saying about Matteo Salvini and, you know, uh, the Northern League in Italy, but also the movement in Italy that's happening at the moment. It's really scary. I mean, we have a fascist, I'm sorry, we have a fascist who's in government, who uses, like, Mussolini, who thinks of himself as Mussolini, you know, descendant, like in government in the third largest EU country in the Eurozone, which this 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 is pretty serious, you know? I know. Tell me. No, it's a uh, it is worrying and and it is worrying that uh, Salvini got uh, so much consensus uh, from the EU, yeah. From the EU and also from from Macron was very nice to him. Yeah, because that's that's the thing that now uh, everybody is uh, afraid of these fascist populists, how you want to call them, and at the same time they want to make them angry. So <laughs> they they try. I don't know. Maybe Salvini is better than Orban. So maybe let's uh, try to deal with Salvini and uh, you know, put pressure on Orban or something like that. I don't know. But this is. Uh, Another way of uh, Europe, I mean, of uh, another, it's another failure for, mm. for Europe. So, Ismail, you touched on some wider political issues outside of just the refugee crisis. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your current investigative work in Somalia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, just thinking about the theme of memory and, and forgetting, because I think um, one of the powers of journalism is to be able to allow audiences to kind of see into the past. And a story that I've been working on for a long time, actually, um, is a story of um, genocide in Somaliland, which is a separate uh, self-declared independent country that no other country recognised, but it's in the northwest bit of Somalia. And uh, in the late 1980s, uh, from 1987 to about 1989, a genocide took place against the Isai clan, who are the largest ethnic group in that part of the country in Somalia. Um, and uh, at the time, Saeed Barre, who was the dictator in Somalia from 1969 until the state collapsed in 1991, uh, led this genocide to eradicate the Assad clansmen of Somaliland who stood up to his rule. And the um, American government at the time, under President Reagan, supported Saeed Barre uh, by giving him arms, by supporting him materially, financially. And he carried out this genocide over the course of two years and something like 200,000 people were killed. And there's a uh, area in Hargeisa, which, which is now the capital of this breakaway republic, some island, it's called the Valley of Death. And for the last three, four years, I've been investigating the story of genocide, which nobody has really spoken about or written about. And because the world doesn't want to acknowledge it, particularly in, in Somalia, because there's a lot of players in Somalia, like the US and the British and the Turks and other people, and um, it serves their political agenda not to acknowledge that this had happened, but the people who lived there remembered. And I think what's really interesting to me is that this historic occurrence of genocide, which is a pretty loaded thing to say to describe it as genocide, but it's been described as genocide by the UN mm -hmm. and by other international organisations and NGOs, is that 
even though the world chose to not remember, the people on the ground remembered. And I think what's interesting to me is that we're working on, on Lost to Europe uh, with miners and people who are, as you're saying, actually, who are very traumatised in really difficult situations. And in the case of Somaliland, you have this whole nation, which is only about three million people at the moment. Um, so someone, every person in that society was probably touched by what happened. Mm-hmm. So you have this occurrence of kind of national trauma. Uh, and was really interesting working on this story was that the people that I spoke to who were there remembered it was like today, it was like yesterday, it was so vivid in their minds. So I'll stop there. No, um, just in terms of these issues of real lived human experiences and yeah, just the, the experiences of, of people in, the, in, yeah. in life. Um, how would you how would you recommend that people, for example, listening to this podcast, can learn more about the experiences, the lived experiences of these migrant children, the work that you've been doing? Well, um, I think there's going to be um, well, there's the website that you can go onto. There is Twitter, there's a Facebook page, and also there is the stories that we're working on for the next coming weeks and months. Basically, I think the best thing to do is to follow our our web page. We are writing a blog, so some news are are coming out already. And uh, at the moment, I think they're in Dutch, though. Yeah. But I've never done our audio blog. So it might be a little uh, uh, specialist interest group. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but also you can follow Cecilia and I online and uh, we're sharing our investigations as we go along. And I think also if you're interested in these uh, issues and you're listening to this in Cambridge or elsewhere, then go to where you are in your community and find out what's going on. Is there an NGO working on the subject? Is there somebody campaigning? Then go out there and support them because I think they need support. And actually part of you know, the work that we're doing is just the standard journalism of investigating something and, and writing about it. We're trying to do another thing, which is talk to people and engage with people and have deeper, more meaningful kind of conversations. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I want to maybe wrap our conversation up with an actually special interest question. So I don't know if this might um, be most interesting to other journalists, um, citizen journalists, like researchers. I'm particularly thinking of it as a researcher, but also for this podcast. So we've been talking about kind of recovering stories, obviously that's what the project does, and also gathering data that hasn't been otherwise gathered, and through that making sure certain things aren't forgotten. But of course we know that like a narrative is not just some like thing for unearthing. Um, you know, as journalists, um, as researchers, we frame the stories we find and we do something with the data. And especially, you know, at a time when people like some of these children are probably scared of having their biometric data taken or their locations or their routes being figured out more and more, um, or at a time where narrations about migrant children are serving the exact opposite purpose of helping them when they turn into things like, you know, these children are, because they've been through all these pain and are vulnerable potentially, are more likely to become extremists. And then people start conceptualizing them as a threat as opposed to an object of sympathy and care. So what I'm asking is basically, are these... I'm sure these are things you think about. And as journalists, like, how do you approach these kind of difficult tasks of, so you go out and you look for stories, but then what do you do with this? Well, of course, when you deal with minors, you have to be very, very careful not to, um, uh, not to put them uh, under, under, I don't know, too bright lights, not to expose their data, their story. They, they, I mean, they don't have to be exposed at all. Mm. So no cameras, 
just uh, a recording thing mm-hmm. and uh, and and of course uh, you you have to use a lot of empathy i think this is the <laughs> mm-hmm. greatest uh, skill for for a journalist uh, most of all when you when you work in this very delicate fields and uh, of course usually you know the most tragic story is the the one you have to follow because it's uh, you know, it's, it's the gold for, for a journalist. But then you have, uh, at the same time, you have to, to be careful. I mean, at least that's how I <laughs> tend to work. And uh, I'm sure, and also Ishmael is, is working, not to stress too much on the tragic part, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. also tell, you know, the, the deep story of, uh, of someone that could be you, basically, that could be anyone. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it's really important that work with children, uh, as we are, uh, they're very often difficult circumstances, so we have to work in an ethical way. Uh, we have to also work in a trauma-aware way, uh, and I'm very interested in the subject of trauma. Uh, I'm affiliated to this centre called Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma, so there's a whole technique and a whole language around interviewing vulnerable children, but also dealing with them. And as Sue was saying, there's lots of ways in which we can do that. Uh, I also think the last point you said is really important, which is we want to tell nuanced and human stories, but we don't want to tell stories that just focus on people's misery. Um, and that just show people for just the kind of the, ex- the experience of the tragedy of what they've gone through. Because actually, to me, what's the most interesting is that the people I meet and I interview all the time who are in very vulnerable situations, they are often some of the most resilient people I've ever met. They have so much hope in them. And that to me is much more interesting and powerful than mm-hmm. the fact that they were a victim or the fact that they had gone through a very difficult circumstance. I think that's a, a really good point to, to end on is that these cases demand empathy and respect because they really could be any one of us should our situations be just slightly different. All right, well, thanks again, Ishmael and Cecilia, for joining us today. And thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Declarations Pod or like us on Facebook. And of course, tune in next time for more Declarations. Declarations.